And so, Karen, am I right in saying that these biodigesters are kind of like the raccoons of the energy world? Welcome to Rebalancing Act. We are Karen and Leslie in two law grads and friends. We know that climate change is here and that we have to solve it. So every second Friday, we come together and talk about how we can get there. Today, we are continuing in on our fire theme, but instead of flames, we're going to talk about biogas. And wait, before you tell me I'm full of hot air, let me give you a little bit of information about this exciting technology that, as you'll hear from my interview guest, Daniel Bida, is a lot of fun to make jokes about. Daniel and I get into it in more detail, but to give you a little bit of background. We've all had food or other organic material go rotten. Sometimes it happens in my fridge. It happens to the best of us. And unfortunately, when those materials break down, in a landfill, for example, they release methane into the atmosphere. A major bummer, right? But there is another way. Enter Daniel Bida, Executive Director of ZooShare, an organization that has built a biodigester plant at the Toronto Zoo. Confused about what a biodigester plant is? You take the organic material, put it in the right environment, and it creates gas that can be used to heat or generate electricity. It is mucho nifty in this podcaster's opinion. Here's Daniel. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Daniel. Oh, you're welcome. It would be great if um, you could just give yourself a little introduction for our listeners. Uh, Sure. So uh, my name is Daniel Bida, and I am the executive director of ZooShare Biogas Cooperative, as well as the president of Regenerate Biogas. And um, I am a biogas developer and um, been um, developing the uh, biogas project at the Toronto Zoo for the last 10 years. And um, I'm uh, I'm a business person by training. I I went to McMaster University and I got a BCom and I got uh, my chartered financial analyst designation as uh, I was and, and still is interested in finance. Um, and so I, I come at my biogas development work and um, my work in the biogas industry in general from, from that perspective. It's funny, you know, learning more about different climate solutions so frequently, I'm just impressed by the creativity of them and how interesting and how I think a lot of the time it's a repurposing and reimagining of the materials that we use in the ways that we live our life. And I think that that seems like it applies to biogas as well if you could explain just a little bit about what it is and how it works. Sure. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you saying that because I think for me, it was really similar what attracted me to the biogas industry in the first place, that it essentially is a technology that tries to add value uh, where others uh, call it waste. You know, for us, it's a resource. And, um, uh, you know, the way that it works is, very similar to our bodies actually, um, where, you know, we eat food, organic waste in the case of the biogas plant, Um, you know, it goes into our stomach. So at the biogas plant, that would be a big concrete stomach. And in essence, uh, you know, for our bodies, we walk around and it churns around in there and there were bacteria and it's kept at 38 degrees Celsius more or less. And we produce uh, energy from it that we, of course, use to power ourselves. And the biogas plant, it's, it's very similar. So we keep the digester at 38 degrees Celsius. Um, the bacteria that live inside of our big concrete stomach eat and digest the waste and release methane gas. 
and that gas can then be used for energy production. So we, we essentially tried to mimic a biological process using uh, mechanical equipment and thermal treatment and, um, and creating a biological environment inside of this concrete tank. And in this way, we feed it food waste um, that uh, sits within the stomach for a period of about 30 days and it breaks down in there, very similar to the way that it would break down in a landfill, um, except in our case, um, you know, it's just focused on the organics and we're harvesting the gas um, right at our system. Whereas at a landfill or, or, you know, even in nature, you can imagine that organic material gets buried underneath other organic material or other garbage, I guess you could say in the, in the case of a landfill. And in that way, uh, by being buried, it's, it's kind of trapped in an oxygen-free environment. And so what uh, biogas in scientific terms is referred to anaerobic digestion. And so anaerobic simply means without oxygen. And so uh, basically um, that same environment can be created if there is enough warmth and there is uh, an absence of oxygen, then the right kind of bacteria will start to eat the material uh, break it down so that it can become fertilizer again and uh, and then release the methane gas um, that can be used for something else. So in our case, at the Toronto Zoo project uh, and at many of the existing biogas projects around Ontario, the gas that is created is harvested and combusted in a combined heat and power unit to generate electricity and heat. Um, the heat is used to keep the digester going, so to keep it at 38 degrees Celsius, to pasteurize the food waste that comes in so that pathogens are killed, basically to make this a self-sustaining process, and the power is exported to the distribution grid. Newer projects uh, and newer, uh, you know, being in the last five years, let's say, within Ontario specifically, um, have started to, instead of generate electricity with the biogas, have started to upgrade it, which basically means to remove the gases that are not methane and make a stream of gas that's about 95% methane content and inject that gas into natural gas pipelines as renewable natural gas. You know, obviously there's a never-ending debate that is very valid over individual versus collective actions, but I think this project just really shows so my brother, he grew up in Toronto like I did, and then he moved to London, Ontario, and they don't have compost pickup there. And he said, and I've lived in places too where there is no compost pickup. And he says, you know, it just feels so unfortunate that you're throwing, you know, once you start throwing a banana peel into the garb into the compost, it feels really hard to throw it just into the garbage afterwards. And I think, you know, this community project just really demonstrates how structural solutions and how a small community of people can just solve this issue in a way that even if every single person on a block wants to do something with their compost, like what can they do, you know, without, without some more support or without some place to put it. So. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. And, and um, you know, just to um, share in your anecdote there, I mean, my wife and daughter and I, we used to live in Toronto for the last uh, well, we grew up there. And um, last year, we moved to Peterborough. And Peterborough being one of the smaller cities in Ontario that doesn't currently have a green bin collection program. And so we, we started backyard composting, which we didn't used to have a backyard. So that was a, a nice improvement for us. 
Um, but uh, in the winter months when, you know, it's not as accessible or, or there's not really going to be a lot of breaking down, we're putting that in the garbage and it just feels so wrong. You know, it's like, I, I guess we're putting it in the garbage. Uh, like, I guess this is, you know, what happens here. And so, you know, I, I know that the city of Peterborough is working on solutions um, around composting curbside organics from the residents, but just being a smaller city and now myself understanding a lot much, a lot more of the um, economics and scale challenges of composting as well as biogas facilities. You know, I understand why the smaller cities haven't jumped on it uh, the way that the city of Toronto has. Um, but to be fair, you know, the city of Toronto uh, very much tried to be a leader when it came to uh, what they were doing with their green bin waste. And, and as a result, um, you know, we, the citizens of Toronto, which I guess doesn't include me anymore, um, but we're, we're paying a premium for our um, green bin processing where, you know, other communities that maybe took it slower are able to pay a lower cost of uh, processing their organic waste than the city is. But um, sometimes I guess that's the cost of going first. Yeah, the first, I know the first move or problem I see, I think you see in so many, so many areas, obviously renewable price, this as well. And, you know, it's so important to have those first people, but I, I completely understand. And I think especially, you know, so much of the time we do, we take certain actions or don't because that's just what we're used to. And so once you've started composting, you know, it's really natural to want to compost or to have that green bin, but it does take, I think, time for that habit formation and to get people on board. So I can definitely see the challenge of like implementing a new system, you know, where people are like, oh, I have a new bin to sort into and I need to read the rules. And sometimes the rules are complicated. So it, it, it is tough. I mean, um, I mean, I think what I've heard over and over again from people that work in the waste industry and are focused upon uh, getting people to sort their waste better so that you create more and more pure streams, whether it's recycling or organics, it's uh, an ongoing challenge. Um, you can educate the public, um, you can educate your employees, you know, in a grocery store restaurant sense, uh, till you're blue in the face. Um, but still, it, it would be a situation where, you know, if the minority doesn't listen or doesn't care, and they put some more um, contaminants in there, then, you know, that's just what you have to manage. And so, you know, it, it's part of what's real at the same time that, you know, when you have millions of waste producers versus, you know, few waste producers, it's, it's really hard to control the quality of the output. And so what that ends up meaning is that at the facilities that process curbside organics, you have to build in additional equipment to handle those things that aren't supposed to be there. Because even if you educate and educate and educate, even if 1% does it wrong and your system isn't built to handle that 1% mistake, uh, you know, the, the system could break. So you have to build in those additional redundancies or, or capabilities in order to handle the full gamut of what comes with organic waste. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's ultimately not as uh, straightforward and simple of a model as you know i and, and everybody else i think that first learns about biogas would think where you know you learn at a high level okay you take what everybody calls waste you put it in this big stomach you make biogas that you can sell 
and you make fertilizer that you can put on the field and grow more food. Well, that sounds really great until you start looking at what actual what actually comes in from the waste management industry. And that isn't to paint them with like a, a broad um, brush of uh, negativity as much as it's just the reality of managing um, organic waste from so many different producers where you have various levels of care and education around what should and shouldn't go in the bin. And so uh, it, it ends up falling on the, the transfer stations and the processing facilities to handle those contaminants. And, you know, it's just part of the deal for us. Uh, but it does mean that um, from a like capital investment perspective and the equipment that we use to process the waste, that it, it's more complex than it seems when you, when you first kind of get into it. I think really so many climate solutions are systems management and system systems management is is um it's always a challenge. Uh, so I was really curious why ZooShare decided to be at the Toronto Zoo. Also, it was a great throwback. I actually haven't been to the you know doing research for this interview. I was like, I should go to the zoo again. I the zoo is great. I mean, it's funny you say that. I mean, so um, when so this project, the the ZooShare project, and and ZooShare as an entity, it only really does exist to accomplish the goal of building this Toronto Zoo biogas project. Um, but when it got started in 2010, a very long time ago now, um, it was the same for me as what you just said, where, you know, I was pretty excited to be working on something at the Toronto Zoo with the people who, who work at and run the Toronto Zoo. And, you know, the, the, the time before that, that I had been to the zoo was, you know, could have been like fourth or fifth grade when we went there for a school trip. And so the opportunity to go back to the zoo um, as a visitor, but also as somebody like working on something to add value to the zoo was really exciting and, you know, nostalgic at the same time. Um, and, and just fun too, you know, it's, it's definitely a place that not only for me, um, had some, you know, emotional throwback, uh, but, you know, like you just said, and I'd heard that over and over again, when we were selling bonds to the public and, and um, you know, we would meet people one on one and talk about what we were doing. Oftentimes I would hear, oh, that's so great. You know, I used to go to the zoo as a kid or I used to take my kids there and I haven't been for a long time. You know, you hear this from from you know, lots of people, I think, in and around not just the city itself, but the greater Toronto area where, you know, that's the zoo that's in this area. So it doesn't necessarily uh, just for the citizens of Toronto, but um, yeah, I, lots of people have some kind of connection to the zoo and, and it's nice. I mean, it's the zoo as a place is a complicated place. I mean, they, everyone who works there is very conservation focused and they love the animals like the same way that we might love our animals at home that we take care of every day. I mean, the keepers have very deep bonded relationships with the animals that they take care of. They're, you know, they're not just, just a rhino. It's, oh, that's Vishnu and, oh, he's so funny. And, um, you know, he really likes carrots or, you know, whatever kind of things that are unique about these personalities, the keepers have those relationships with the animals. And so um, it's, it's really nice to be able to uh, contribute and to work with people like that. 
But at the same time, it's interesting when we were out about in the public trying to sell our ZooShare biogas community bonds, how immediately many people just assumed we were part of the Toronto Zoo and started to talk to us about zoo matters. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. whether that was 10 years ago, oh, the elephants are leaving, or, or currently even, or, or through the years, you know, lots of people who share our environmental views and passions have big problems with zoos. And so it was a contentious subject sometimes where, you know, they wanted to talk about what we were doing and they were generally supportive of the work we were doing, but they felt some kind of thing holding them back because of the association with the zoo and their mixed feelings about zoos in general. And, uh, you know, I mean, all of this was very educational for me to learn about people's views that, um, you know, I, I, I had the understanding that a zoo could be a contentious place, but I also have had this positive view of the Toronto Zoo my whole life. And even once we initiated the project and I met some of the people there and I could better understand how they did things at the Toronto Zoo, you know, I continued to hold positive feelings about it but I could understand where everyone was coming from. But so, I mean, the gist of why we called it Zoo Share is because quite obviously it's at the Toronto Zoo and um, it was the Toronto Zoo that initiated this project. They have a, a piece of land across the street from the main zoo site where for the last few decades, they've been composting their manure, uh, putting them in windrows, turning them over periodically, uh, using the finished compost for landscaping purposes. Um, but it wasn't really generating any value for them beyond processing their manure. And um, so they decided at some point um, in between 2003, when they initially did a study on it, and 2010, when they put out an RFP to build a biogas plant, that they wanted to turn their manure into something more productive. And so at the time that the project launched, uh, I myself was very much inspired by the work being done by the Center for Social Innovation, who had just issued a community bond themselves, uh, as well as um, the Toronto Renewable Energy Cooperative, who had at that time launched a, a solar co-op called SolarShare. And so, you know, I was working closely with those individuals. I was very much inspired by the work that they were doing and wanting to mimic their models in the biogas space. And so that's where the, the idea of calling it something share came from was, you know, really mimicking SolarShare um, and WindShare, the, the wind cooperative they created before that one. And uh, so, you know, I thought here was an opportunity to do with biogas and, uh, I certainly wasn't about to call it poo share, um, <laughs> but um, you know, being at the zoo, uh, zoo share was was plenty. But at the same time, I couldn't I couldn't resist going hard after the uh, the punny approach to things. Um, you know, I very much like to be serious and silly at the same time, and and that was kind of the approach that I took with ZooShare. And so that was how we, you know, we came up with this tagline of investment with potential and we put poo right there in our logo. Um, and I, you know, I can promise you that over the years that we've been doing this work and talking to people like yourself, but just, you know, hundreds of people that we were trying to sell bonds to as well. I've heard every manner of poo joke imagined. Um, you know, I think uh, people have very much uh, met me where I was at too, where, 
you know, they want to have a serious conversation, but sneak in a few incredibly lame poo jokes. Too. It's, <laughs> it's good fun. And uh, I think that was what we were going for um, was, was, you know, there's a ton of education that's related to what we did here. Um, not only organizationally is it part of our mission to educate the public about biogas and the true value of organic waste, uh, but you can imagine in trying to sell an investment opportunity to the general public, um, you know, there was just a lot to teach people before they can even make a buying decision or an investment decision. I mean, what is biogas? Pretty. Um, big question that comes up right away. Um, but most of the people um, in society don't know what nonprofits are, what cooperatives are, what community bonds are, and how of all those things, you know, work and how they can feel comfortable that their investment is safe and secure and will generate the returns offered. Um, you know, there's loads of questions when somebody makes an investment. And most of the people that we were selling investments to just being like general public, we, you know, we would go to farmers markets or the green living show or other kinds of trade shows geared at people who were more, you know, motivated by environmental solutions and progressive ideas and alternative investment um, opportunities. Um, and so I, most of these people either, you know, their savings were in a pension where, you know, it's just deducted from their paycheck and they never really think about how it's managed or they bought mutual funds and had an investment advisor that just did it all for them. Or, you know, sometimes I would hear, you know, oh, my, my husband or my wife manages that stuff. I don't really know. And so, you know, it was just interesting because we were talking to a lot of people that, that weren't familiar with managing their investments and managing investments typically means having some understanding of the risk and return profile of the investment, as well as the risk and return uh, tolerance of the investor. Uh, but um, you know, a retail investor doesn't typically have those things at the forefront of their mind, especially if they're used to just buying mutual funds or GICs or just deferring all responsibility to a quote unquote expert. Um, and so, you know, we had a lot of interesting conversations, um, not just where we uh, blathered on for 20 minutes about all of the great things that we were doing, um, but also just really needing to help people understand where we as an investment opportunity um, actually fe uh, fell on the risk and reward spectrum. I heard, I had some people come up to me and say, wow, you know, 7% return on a bond. That's crazy. I only get 2% in my GIC. And I, I would just be taken aback. I was like, no, 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 it's not the same. <laughs> like I, I needed to really um, like hold their hand and say, no, 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 it's absolutely not like that. And, and maybe that was some of my um, like finance guy personality coming out where I, I couldn't allow them to have that misunderstanding about the risk of what I was selling um, and still feel okay with myself. Um, but also I just really wanted them to understand that there are differences here. And, and even though we were offering a, um, a good return on a fixed income type security, that there was added risk related to it relative to something like a, a GIC. Um, and, um, you know, I think that too was interesting from the education perspective, um, seeing people's responses to the word risk, you know, like just even talking about risks made people think it was risky. And, you know, those were surprising things to me 
but all part of what the learning process that we needed to go through in order to make this community-owned biogas plant a reality. I thought that what Daniel was saying made a lot of sense, and I wanted to discuss this with Leslie Ann. I think the role of finance and financial models is something that is some it's something that's becoming so much more brought into public attention and into the public space as being a necessary component of lots of climate solutions. When you think about the scale of a non of a nonprofit or even by government action, just compared to the total capital flowing through business markets every single day, you realize that I think private business models also have to be a part of the solution. I think you're totally right. And I think, you know, what's interesting here is of structuring these financial systems for these organizations to do this work. I think it's really interesting. It is cool. Totally. And even and there with are the so more traditional business models, you're seeing the pickup in um, climate-related financial disclosures. Uh, I've recently been taking um, some like little online like continuing education courses on climate disclosures from the task force for climate disclosure disclosures, uh, which was which is one of, yeah, the like leading models for that. Uh, just because I don't totally understand how they work Sweet. and I'd like to, because I think it is really important as a way to ensure businesses are one, thinking about, you know, the impacts of climate change on their mm-hmm. work. But I also like the focus on opportunities because I think that's a really good way to be encouraging businesses to think about what they can do in terms of climate solutions by focusing on that opportunities portion of their disclosures. Totally. I also think, I mean, it's so hard to have, not everyone's always working with the same terminology. It's so hard to have quest, you know, real, I think, actual concrete conversations about the role that like, slowed growth, degrowth, you know, whether like what system is best for for humans and the planet both, because I think those are so frequently intertwined. But I do think personally that, you know, uh, perhaps the neoliberal mindset, I think, has been shown to not always work on its own merits. But I just think that something like ZooShare really shows the power of the market to drive change. And Daniel discusses the best ways for going about this, how we learned to explain the ZooShare opportunity to people in a way that worked. Well, I totally agree, not enough. Um, like what we found in the phase where we were like, um, you know, hammering home that it was a win, 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 win type solution is that it, w- it was kind of coming off as altruistic and people would smile. Of course, they're always trying to be polite. Excuse me but it wouldn't be enough to motivate action. It needs to be the kind of thing where you yourself have an aha moment where you're, oh, okay, I understand what you're doing here. Oh, okay, I understand. You're looking for my money and you're gonna pay me a 7% 
return or 5% return. And this is when I'll get it back. And this is what you're going to do with it. And so when it became a bit of more, let's call it factual and just like straight to the point, it became easier to have good conversations. And it also became easier to make progress on the bond sales and with the overall project. Yeah, no, absolutely. Especially if you're at the farmer's market, you kind of have your Saturday brain on and you you know, you learn about this cool opportunity and you're like, great, but like also, yeah, no, I totally understand where are the butter tarts, but I always, I know it's so not a farmer's market item, but I always like scope out some butter tarts. Cause for me, I'm like, that's what I am seeking whenever I'm going to oh, that's cool. yeah. like butter tarts so much. Yeah. And I liked your phrase there, Saturday brain. Yeah. As well. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, we, cause the thing was too, when, when you're selling a community bond, um, you know, who's the target for that? And who's the target for something that is community driven in general and renewable and, you know, frankly speaking, a little bit altruistic. Those kinds of people are more likely to be at the farmer's market where they can have conversations with the growers, where they can, you know, support directly of the growers rather than via the like supermarket chain or value chain. And so, you know, not to say that those are bad things, but I just think that people that are willing to get up on a Saturday morning and spend their first few hours of their day doing that are more than likely the kind of people who would be interested in what we were doing. And, and you know, not to say that we sold huge amounts of bonds Saturdays at the farmer's market, but we would every Saturday have pretty consistently strong conversations with, um, you know, a certain number of interested people and for us, eventually we got to the tipping point where enough people themselves had come and looked and made an investment, but also said to their friends and family, like, hey, there's this thing I just invested in, um, or, you know, you might not know this, but, you know, renewable, or sorry, organic waste is actually really valuable, or it really makes a difference if you put it in the right bin. And that was what we were going for. You know, we wanted people to not only put their money in the project, but also to walk away knowing that organic waste was very impactful if you put it in the garbage and very valuable if you put it in the green bin. And, um, you know, I think that for the most part, we've accomplished that for the people that we've spoken to. Um, obviously, we haven't talked to everybody and not everybody knows about us, but that was other, the other major reason why locating at the Toronto Zoo is really exciting for ZooShare as an organization because it's very high profile. They get over a million visitors a year. There's a direct link to the student population. Like you and I talked about, we went to the zoo when we were students last, um, you know, I think for me it was about grade four. Um, and so for us, you know, we, we want those same kids that are there to see the rhinos and giraffes and zebras, et cetera, to then come across the street and see what happens with all the poo. Yeah, and, and kids love um, that. I feel like kids are way more open to that kind of stuff too. I think that's true. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an icky thing as we talk about, you know, but it's really not. I mean, I think that most people don't really like to talk about and think about what happens to all of our human waste. I've definitely spoken to people that way. And as we got, as, as I and the people I work with got deeper into the biogas space, I mean, human waste and processing of biosolids is a big part of our society. And oftentimes the exact same technology is used to process human waste, but it's not something that most people like to think about or talk about. 
Um, animal manure is probably safer for people to talk about and think about. And, uh, and, and that's probably where all the jokes started to come in and, and the fun there. Um, I don't know if it would have necessarily gone the same way if we were a, a human poo story. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I probably, probably would have got a lot of dirty looks and people being kind of hesitant to talk. For sure. Maybe you, maybe you primed them. I do think a lot of the time, like, uh, my understanding of how behavior change works is that so many people think, you know, you just have to have say the right stuff in one conversation. And I think it really is a series of overlapping conversations that someone gets introduced to the idea first of animal waste, and then like their mind is perhaps more open to like other solutions. Um, you know, I, I have no idea whether our society is going to start processing human waste differently at scale, but I think even just like people understanding the value, like you said, about organic waste and how you can create value by processing it, you know. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, 100%. I mean, so like I said, though, on the on the human waste side, it's already something that's happening. Uh, you know, the, the people who know about it are municipal wastewater engineers, and people who work in the, you know, wastewater infrastructure industry. Um, there's probably not a huge amount of value, not value, but um, additional projects that could be generated now that we know that we're talking about human waste um, as a potential input source. But really it's like kind of everything else that you, you know, we were speaking about earlier um, in some communities, you put it in the garbage can and realizing like, oh, you know, if I do something different with that, somebody could make some energy out of it. Um, that's an epiphany. And, and what was probably really um, the most rewarding thing for me when I was going to, when I was in that phase where we would go on and on about what biogas is and how it works and all the great things about it um, would be the moment where I could see in the person's eyes that the wheels were really turning and they were excited to interrupt and say, wait, can I put this in there? Can you make biogas with that? And, and that was really cool for me because it, it didn't just show that they were getting, you know, what it was I was talking about, but they were already going to the next place of thinking about all the possibilities. And um, so, I mean, ZooShare absolutely was a great tool in teaching people about the circular economy um, but also just about, you know, the value of organics, what else could be done. And, um, you know, I, I think while we did accomplish a bunch of that when we were out and about with our banners and brochures and, and really using the story as a means of selling community bonds, now that the biogas plant is built and operational, um, you know, we could show them how it works. We could show them organic waste arriving in a big truck and being dumped into receiving tanks and gas being produced and power being produced, you know, all of these things, it's not just a story anymore, right? Now, now it can become a physical thing that you can observe with your eyes and um, the story, which may or may not have inspired you, could potentially be that much more powerful now. And uh, we're, we're really excited about giving people tours and, um, you know, certainly talking up it as a tool within the circular economy and how um, you know it's not just organics where it's possible to um, divert and separate and um, extract value from things that previously we just chucked in a hole in the ground. That, that is so great. It's so great to learn about this project and I really think once again it just shows the value of good communication 
I didn't know anything about regenerative biogas before, you know, just before researching and talking to you, but really breaking it down for our listeners, I think people will be really interested and will definitely follow follow Zooshare and all of the other stuff that I'm sure you're going to produce. I'm sure this is not your last project, that there is more to come. No, thanks. I, I certainly hope so. I mean, for me, it was my first major biogas project after I decided to stop being an analyst and, and um, you know, mustered up the courage to, to start something and, and try to do something, so to speak, rather than just be a professional critic on the sidelines. And, um, you know, there's been so much learning from it um, that I've taken away. And I'm the kind of person that's almost um, like, I assume I don't know very much or that I know less than most people. And so I, um, I, I approach this project like, okay, well, I need to get through the entire process from start to finish and learn everything I can from that before I can confidently stand up and tell someone I can do their project for them. And so in a lot of ways, I, I tried not to add more project developments to my plate while this one was going on so that I could harvest as much as I can so as not to, you know, repeat mistakes next time around. And so, you know, now that the project has just started to operate, I'm, I'm very much, uh, you know, excitedly looking at and talking to others about what's next and, and what the next thing that we're going to do is. That's awesome. I'm also excited to hear what the next, next thing you're going to do is. And, you know, you can always come back on the podcast and tell <laughs> us about that too. Thanks. Yeah, that would be great. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today, Danielle. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, if you have any other follow-up questions, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you to Daniel for joining us and to our wonderful listeners for following along. That's all, folks, for fire. You got a little bit of flame, a little bit of combustion, and we're on to air next week, where we're going to be talking about the greenhouse effect, the impact of renewables on clean air, carbon-negative technologies, and more. We will see you folks soon, and if you haven't gotten enough Rebalancing Act in your life, you can always visit us at rebalancingact.ca, find us on Instagram at at rebalancingact, or on Twitter at at rebalancingact underscore.